I just feel like there's a lot at stake here in the world changing. And I think there are no good options for the West, you know, unless they put pressure on Israel to stop this, this attack, murderous, genocidal attack on the Palestinians. The role of the Europeans and the United States in the Arab world, in many parts of the world, is finished. I don't think there's a future for it. Uh, but I, I also don't think they're going to be capable of telling the Israelis to stop. Either it's guilt for the Holocaust, because after all, this is a European crime that Europe has not really been able to atone for. I mean, the Germans play a duplicitous game. You know, they still have great wells of anti-Semitism in Germany, but they want to blame other people of anti-Semitism. You know, deal with your own problem, man. You are the guys that created the Holocaust, not the Arabs. Um, you know, the Arabs didn't engender the Holocaust. Why are you blaming them for it? You know, it's ridiculous. Hello, everybody. This is Pascal from Neutrality Studies. And today I'm joined again by Vijay Prashat, who is an Indian historian, journalist and academic. He currently serves as the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. And his latest book is The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan and the Fragility of US Power, which he wrote together with Noam Chomsky. And uh, Vijay is a great expert on the Middle East, so I really wanted to talk to him about this absolute horrific tragedy that is happening um, as we are speaking in Gaza. Uh, Vijay, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, yeah. Vijay, I, I need, really needed to to talk to someone who a has a connection to to this place and b has such a deep understanding like you of colonialism and this this crime of 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 constant subjugation of people peoples of color, which is like what we are seeing right now. I I really I this it fascinates me and 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 it disgusts me that we have all of this talk in the West about values values the whole time and the best we are getting at the moment is people saying that oh you know humanitarian law should be uh, should be followed but israel has the right to defend itself and basically giving israel carte blanche to con to commit a humanitarian genocide can you make sense of this utter delusion of the west trying to ignore that what we are seeing here is genocidal in the worst sense of this horrible word the, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, you know, I, I, I've been to Palestine several times um, after Operation Protective Edge. That's what the Israelis called it in 2014. I visited uh, Gaza City, Khan Yunis, you know, walked along the Saladin Street, which divides North and South Gaza. And at the time, you know, I produced this book called Letters to Palestine, thinking, it can't get any worse than this. You know, entire neighborhoods in Gaza City wiped out. Um, Jabalia was also hit, but other camps were hit even worse. Um, you know, several thousand people killed and so on. I thought, just can't get any worse. And then, of course, um, this bombardment, which is, you know, hard to um, compare. You know, uh, I remember the war in Iraq, um, the ruthless bombardment, the first couple of weeks, Baghdad took a real hit, you know, again, and then more than Baghdad, Ramadi, Fallujah in Iraq, and then in 2017, Mosul. And, you know, we forget that in Mosul, 11,000 civilians were killed, you know, in the war against ISIS. I mean, it's this, this is amnesia, you know. Um, 
11,000 civilians. And by the way, in Mosul, civilians, when the bombing started, the U.S. started bombing Mosul to get ISIS out. Civilians could run into the countryside, which is what they did. And also, ISIS only had two years to dig in. In the case of Gaza, there's no countryside. Um, people are sitting ducks. You know, where they are is where the bombs are falling. They can't go anywhere. Um, it's, it's horrific, you know, in that sense. Now, let's back up to your introduction and the key words there. You know, of course, a country has a right to defend itself. You know, that, that's true. That's the basis of um, a great deal of international law. But defend itself against whom? Against another country. You know, if a country is attacked, you are, have the right to defend yourself against another country. But do you have the right to defend yourself against people you've occupied? Um, Palestine isn't a country. Palestine is a place under occupation by international law. In other words, UN resolutions over and over again have established that there's something called, and this is the United Nations language, the occupied Palestinian territory. That's what Gaza is called. That's what the West Bank and East Jerusalem are called. Despite the Oslo Accord, which is supposed to have created a state of Palestine, there isn't a state of Palestine. There continues to be an occupied Palestinian territory. So, yes, countries have the right to defend themselves. But when Western leaders over and over and over again say Israel has a right to defend itself, they're making a legal error. It has a right to defend itself if it's attacked by another country. But it cannot defend itself like this against people over whom it has occupation laws and obligations. You know, um, when you occupy a people, you have to treat them a certain way. The third and fourth Geneva Conventions apply. Um, you can't transfer populations, for instance. You know, you can't build settlements on their land. Um, you can't treat them in a subhuman way, you know, where you cut down water supplies and you enforce collective punishment and so on. These are all illegal by international law against anybody, but particularly against people who have been occupied because they actually have a right to resist. That's the curiosity of international law. It's been set aside by the kind of things said by Mr. Biden, Macron, Justin Trudeau, Olaf Schulz, you know, um, um, uh, Prime Minister Meloni of, of Italy. They've set aside, you know, in a sense, the niceties of international law. And in fact, I'm sorry to keep going on, but I think the point should be made here. In fact, what's interesting is that U.S. high officials have mimicked Israeli high officials in saying, and this is to quote James Kirby, um, there are no red lines. In other words, Israel can do what it wants. You know, if it needs to kill civilians, it can kill civilians. Um, that's where we are. And the tragedy of this whole situation of the setting aside of international law, these statements being made about they can attack without red lines and so on, is that there really isn't anybody um, on the international stage standing up and speaking in a loud and clear voice for the Palestinians, apart from a few countries, Bolivia, you know, um, Colombia, few countries are saying, no, no, we are not going to have this. But by and large, Pascal, what's really quite unfortunate is that despite the vote, 120 people in the UN General Assembly, 120 countries saying that, look, there needs to be some kind of humanitarian assistance and a ceasefire and so on. Despite that, there is no material 
pressure on the Israeli government to stop the slaughter. There is no material pressure. Um, you know, Colombia withdrawing its ambassadors, Bolivia with this doesn't impact um, you know, Israel in a material way. Um, you know what would impact Israel in a material way is if countries announce that they are going to apply universal jurisdiction against Israeli high officials. And if, you know, Mr. Netanyahu, any member of his cabinet enters their territory, they're going to arrest them for war crimes. Um, that would be interesting. That's a material, you know, uh, pressure on the Israeli government. But nobody's done that. But it's, it's, it's even worse, isn't it? I mean, it's not only that nobody puts pressure on Israel. I mean, the United States is in the process of giving 14 billion US dollars uh, to Israel to do whatever it whatever it believes it needs to do. It, it is transferring military assets to the Middle East to cover the back, to scare off the Iranians, to not intervene, to, to let it happen. The, the, there is the, There's pressure on Egypt to open the borders and, and then flood out all 2.3 million uh, Palestinians and just create another fact of the ground i mean there's active genocide support coming from the west and the europeans they're just like yeah that's just what it is um we are calling for everybody to do it in a, in a humanitarian way it is absolutely insane and the international institutions if i remind you that we have an icc warrant for vladimir putin for the fact that he resettled children <laughs> resettling them taking them out and we already have four thousand dead children in palestine and as you said, it's like there's nothing happening. The only the only little uh, hope I have is that we actually see massive outcry on the streets. And we did see the, the secretary general actually of the UN actually not actually saying things that surprised me, you know, that that, uh, that, that this didn't happen in a vacuum and breaking the narrative of everything started on October 7, which is like such a such a standard thing to do. You say that arbitrary a starting point where you were the victim and then everything else is 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 excused. And we can see how the West is praying this down like a mantra, right? That that everything started with Hamas October 7, October 7, the, the world before didn't exist. The entire 75 years of colonialism didn't exist. Um, do you, what do you think that this will do? Because what I just said is so obvious by now, I believe that probably 80%, maybe 85% of the world see that. It's the Europeans, again, and the North Americans who pretend they don't see it, although I'm pretty sure a large number do. What do you think this will do to world politics? Well, you know, the first thing is I felt already that Ukraine was accelerating a real change, you know. Um, and, and, you know, we, we saw that at the last Munich Security Conference where a number of world leaders, the Prime Minister of Namibia um, at the lead, you know, the Vice President of Colombia, just saying, look, we're not going to tail um, the United States on Ukraine. We just don't think um, that prosecuting this war is a good idea. We want peace. We don't want to isolate Russia. We think that's really bad for the world and so on. You know, Ukraine already began to accelerate some trends, which is that the South, by and large, um, was beginning to diverge from the United States and its project. I mean, in, in April, the diplomatic blue book released by the Japanese government for the first time had a long section on the global South, where they went on and on saying, you know, we need to, we need to engage the global South. Uh, in fact, in in January of, of this year, um, the press officer of the foreign ministry of Japan was asked in a press conference, you know, what is, can you define the global south? And she said, well, we're not really sure. 
but we know it's important, you know, and we think it's the developing countries. I mean, I thought, my God, guys, uh, get a clue because these changes are happening and, they, they, and that was accelerated by Ukraine. I think this conflict is, and the way in which the United States in particular is in the lead saying no red lines and so on, this conflict is going to further accelerate some of these divides. Now, there are some confusions. India is in a very complicated position because its own government has a deeply anti-Muslim uh, attitude and has some fealty to Israel on this. I India is not supporting Israel, by the way, merely abstaining, not because it's under pressure from the United States, but it has its own ugly project um, you know, of, of dealing with Muslims in the country, its understanding of Kashmir and so on. Um, that's its own national interest speaking. It's not a sign that India is subordinate to the United States. But once again, in fact, it's evidence of that global South countries are saying we have our own national interest. You know, I'm interested um, this attempt by the United States to knit together the Arab world in a project um, from Morocco all the way out to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, on the one side, normalization with Israel, that was part of it, but also this, you know, Middle East Europe corridor that they were keen to build from India, which they announced at the G20, from India through Saudi Arabia into Israel, across the waters into Europe. This was supposed to be a kind of challenge to the Chinese-led Belt and Road Initiative. Firstly, it was a curious amalgam because two of the ports in this Middle East Europe corridor had were managed by the Chinese. So, you know, you're not going to be able to get away with Chinese infrastructure in the region. Um, but actually, now I would say that's over. I very much doubt that the Saudi monarchy, you know, uh, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, Crown Prince, had a phone call. I mean, effectively, Mohammed bin Salman is the head of state in Saudi Arabia. He had a phone call with the president of Iran, President Rais, where they talked about how horrendous the you know, stuff was in Gaza, horrendous bombardment. This is on the second day of the bombardment, mind you. They, it's the first phone call of two of these two heads of the government since 1979. Saudi head of government, meaning the king, has not spoken to the president of Iran since 1979. As I said, Mohammed bin Salman is effectively the king. You know, he's the crown prince, but he's running the show. Um, I don't think the Saudis are going to be able to normalize with Israel. Um, the the Ar people in the Arab world, you know, we're talking about people on the streets. My God, million people in Amman, Jordan, people protesting in Egypt. CC, President CC of Egypt saying we're not going to allow protests and they happen anyway. You know, people in Saudi Arabia riled up. I'm talking to government officials in Saudi Arabia. They themselves would like to get on the street, you see. So I think this is going to make the West's project, in other words, a rearguard action to keep control over trade, development, and so on in the world, you're not going to be able to do it, not if you allow this to happen. You're going to lose. That is, the West is going to lose control of its attempt to reassert control in the Arab world, you know, through this Abraham Accords, which is a very clever idea, I must say, the Abraham Accords. It was a kind of way to re-energize the pro-U.S. feeling among particularly the monarchies in the uh, in the Arab world, from Morocco to Bahrain to Saudi Arabia and so on, all of that is over. And I really, really doubt that the Saudis will be have any appetite to build this 
you know, Asia, Middle East, Europe corridor, which leads through Israel. Um, I don't think they're going to have an appetite for that. I think, you know, if they agree to it at all, they're going to have to, the Saudis are going to have to make a deal with the Syrians to let the corridor go up through Jordan, Syria, and then maybe the port of Latakia. But I don't think the West is interested in that. So frankly, this is a dead duck, you know, because there's no way to go from Saudi Arabia to Europe um, unless you use the Suez Canal, you know, which then comes back to comes back to a 19th century trade route. What's new about that? It's the same old thing that's been there for a while. Um, I just feel like there's a lot at stake here in the world changing. And I think there are no good options for the West, you know, unless they put pressure on Israel to stop this, this attack, murderous, genocidal attack on the Palestinians, the role of the Europeans and the United States in the Arab world, in many parts of the world, is finished. I don't think there's a future for it. Uh, but I, I also don't think they're going to be capable of telling the Israelis to stop. Either it's guilt for the Holocaust, because after all, this is a European crime that Europe has not really been able to atone for. I mean, the Germans play a duplicitous game. You know, they still have great wells of anti-Semitism in Germany, but they want to blame other people of anti-Semitism. You know, deal with your own problem, man. You're the guys that created the Holocaust, not the Arabs. Um, you know, the Arabs didn't engender the Holocaust. Why are you blaming them for it? You know, it's ridiculous. So neither the Europeans nor the U.S. will pressure Israel to prevent this, which is which which means we're going to have enormous loss of life. We're at about eight, nine thousand dead. Remember, I said that in Mosul to get rid of ISIS, the U.S. had to kill 11,000 Iraqi civilians. It's a comparable city, but people in Mosul could run to the countryside. In, in Gaza, they're going to kill maybe 20, 30,000 people. Do you think the Arab populations are going to sit by and watch? If Abdullah II of Jordan doesn't act, his monarchy is over. If Sisi of Egypt doesn't act, the military of Egypt might act against Sisi. I mean, we are in very, very touch and go times. And these people know it. Abdullah II is a smart guy. He knows it. If he, if he holds that peace agreement in his draw and doesn't take it out and threaten to tear it up, the peace agreement with Israel, his regime may not last the year. This is what is so insanely dangerous. This war could become really, really big. It could draw in Jordan, Lebanon. It could draw in, of course, Syria is already basically inside because the U.S. occupies parts of it. And we can already see how this is this is an additional front, right? And we can see how, how Iran, Iran is at the, at, at the brink also of, of being sucked into this, which would immediately suck the United States into it. This could be, this could be millions of dead people. Uh, or or even worse than that and the the, the what, what we see with the palestinians is that every single time you know a, 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 an israeli dies usually the, the the proportionality of the strike back is 1 to 100 between 50 to 100 so we we are looking at 50 to 100,000 dead palestinians if it stays contained um without any kind of external pressure uh, do you do you think that there is a way out of one of these like large war scenario or a small genocide scenario? Yeah, I mean, you know, firstly, I would say that it's very interesting. Um, American liberal tele radio show 
the New Yorker Radio Hour, um, you know, hosted by David Renmick, who's the editor of the New Yorker's standard boilerplate liberal periodical. You know, this is where liberalism comes to relax. Okay. Um, David Renmick had a Palestinian, Sari Nasube, a philosopher, ethicist on the show, but he also had an Israeli talk show, um, not talk show, she's like a presenter on Israeli television, Yonit Levy. Yonit Levy went uh, on the show and she said that the um, number of killed at the time um, Israeli dead was about 1,400, Palestinian dead 4,500. She said there's no moral equivalence between the two. Um, and what struck me, because I've heard this from Israeli officials a lot, you know, there's no moral equivalence. You know, Israel, as you said, 100 to 1, 50 to 1, whatever it might be. But what struck me as interesting, Pascal, is that David Renmick didn't pursue this. He changed the subject. He didn't say to her, how can you say there's no moral equivalence? Don't you feel every life is sacred and so on? He never said anything. This is American liberalism. This is not, you know, American hard right or anything. This is the New Yorker, for God's sake. You know, you would have expected the New Yorker at the very least to have said, you know, listen, you can't talk like that. But no, it is now acceptable to imagine um, that, you know, civilians in Palestine have to die. And why do they have to die? Well, there are many theories. One is it's revenge. I don't think that's it. Uh, secondly, it might very well be that they are trying to cleanse the northern part of Gaza. Already the tanks have come in and behind them the bulldozers. They're just bulldozing houses. Why? Because they don't want that area to be occupied any longer by Palestinians. When, when Mr. Gallant, the defense minister of, of Israel, told the um, various committees in Tel Aviv, he said that, you know, there are three parts of our plan. The third part was to make sure that Gaza would never, ever be a security threat. Well, when you occupy people, they're going to resist. The only way to make Gaza no longer a security threat is to remove all the people. And the bulldozers are going to do that. They are pushing the rubble of houses preciously built by refugees from 1948. Those precious houses, those apartment buildings, people sacrifice themselves to be able to buy an apartment in some of these buildings. I have friends who lost their apartments in Gaza City. They're just going to bulldoze all that. They're not going to throw it in the Mediterranean somewhere else because they'll keep the beach pristine. Um, it'll be a new resort where Americans can go on holiday, uh, a safe place where Americans can go on holiday from Tel Aviv all the way down to perhaps they'll name a city called Ben-Gurion or something, you know, Ben-Gurion City um, on the Mediterranean, its southern flank. Um, you know, I don't know what they are planning for it, but it looks like they are saying, no more Palestinians. And then the pressure on Sisi. You're going to take these 2.3 million Palestinians and put them in the Sinai. Uh, they can't come to the Negev. They're not going to be in Gaza. They have to go to the Sinai. And I'm telling you, Sisi doesn't want that. Sisi has already cleared out the Sinai in 2014-15. He already fought a little war there with various people in the Sinai clearing that out. That's not going to happen. And this thing about Iran, you know, it's interesting. There are 72 U.S. armed warships in the eastern Mediterranean. 72. Two main carrier groups. And you add up all the ships. That's a lot of ships sitting in the eastern Mediterranean. It's a traffic jam. Why are they there? They are not there to bomb Gaza. The Israelis don't need help. They can devastate from the air. They have got enough. And as you said, the U.S. is resupplying them. 
they don't need assistance this is a threat this is supposed to threaten syria and threaten iran if you get involved we're going to bomb you but it's also a threat to hezbollah very interesting more than 3 weeks into this conflict um, Said Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah hasn't spoken. Um, he's really not said anything. Uh, and I know, and he knows that if he speaks, he has to declare war on Israel. There is nothing else Nasrallah can say. Um, they released photographs and a video, silent video of him talking to the leaders of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. But they didn't date that conversation. You know, Hezbollah is smart. They just released the images to say, we are with Islamic Jihad, we are with Hamas. But they didn't tell us what they talked about or they didn't date it. Nasrallah is not going to speak. You know, right now there's some rocket fire. This is rogue rocket fire. I don't think this is authorized by Hezbollah, which has 100,000 people under arms. Um, when they act, they will act. Um, the U.S. is, uh, the Israelis have already fired white phosphorus into southern Lebanon. There's a report from Amnesty International about this. That's a itself a war crime. Um, the Lebanese government is too scared to complain you know it's it's interesting iran doesn't want to enter into this as an armed conflict they've said it a number of times they think if they enter they will be devastated as you say millions could die they are not interested in this in fact the syrian government is not interested the firing that came into the golan heights was by various factions most likely you know these small factional groups that were there in the fight against um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda before that. These are not groups that are, you know, controlled by the Syrian government. I've been in that area in the Kalamun Mountains and down below Sinai. There's a lot of factions that are there that are basically out of control. Okay. Some of them are highly disciplined and so on, very well trained. Uh, but they're firing rockets out of anger, frustration. It's not a strategy. You know, most of the rockets that the Houthis fired or Al-Ansardin fired from Yemen were picked up by the arrow dome, not iron dome, but the arrow system. Uh, none of them have come in. It's interesting that the Ansar Deen has declared war on Israel. I mean, Yemen is far away. They can't really do anything. You know, they're not going to, but it's a matter of, it's, in my opinion, this is the last thing I'd say about that. What Ansar Deen did by declaring war on Israel is that they've actually put pressure on the other Arab states. There was a Turkish TV show about six days ago where a man called from Palestine, a uh, very interesting intervention he made. He said, listen, um, you know, when we die, we don't want you to pray for us. We don't want you to be sad for us. And the reason we don't want Muslim countries to pray for us is you're already dead. Good Lord. Um... What a political statement that is, mm. right? Yeah. You know, this what strikes me is that there this has been ongoing for 75 years. And the root cause of it is, of course, because you have a plot of land and you have two peoples that don't like each other that both claim um, uh, claim it. Right. Uh, OK, fine. Let, let's just that's it. And then you have you have a cycle of violence. Right. A constant 75-year cycle of violence where on both sides people die. On one side, they do much more dying, much, much more dying. Uh, I would say that there is no equivalence, but okay, we have a cycle. 
And what we've seen on 7th of October is obviously the latest itineration of the cycle that kicks it in again. And the, it seems to me that even if Israel succeeded in expelling 2.3 million Palestinians or killing 2.3 Palestinians, uh, 2.3 million Palestinians, you would still have about 4 million in the West Bank. It's like you cannot escape this cycle. I mean, there must be people in Israel and actually also the United States who understand that, uh, that this and it would only make the cycle worse because it gets everybody else uh, angry. I mean, even if you expel 2 million Palestinians to the Sinai, what do you think they're going to be doing there? Do you think they're just going to be happy sitting there at the border of their land and never ever do anything against you again? The cycle perpetuates. That's why I see one of the worst forms of anti-Semitism is what Benjamin Netanyahu is doing, because he makes sure that future Israelis will die. This not breaking this cycle is the surest thing to make them die. Why do you think that this is still being so adamantly, ardently supported uh, by by Western capitals. It's it's obviously a cycle, isn't it? I mean, how blind would one have to be? I mean, look, firstly, they are doing something quite convenient for themselves, but in, in, inconvenient for history, which is to say this is an attack on Hamas. They want to uproot Hamas. What they don't understand, and they, they well know this, but they don't understand it, is Hamas is not a... Uh, cancer on the Palestinians. Hamas comes out of the resistance movement. So, you know, many years ago, Khalid Mishal said, he was then the leader of Hamas. He said, you know, people talk about Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. They don't realize that, in fact, we keep things under some check because there are people far more, um, you know, militant than us, including strains that we might call ISIS that were developing. And he said, Hamas basically controlled that and said, no, no, we don't want that. We are fighting for national liberation. We're not fighting to create an Islamic Republic and so on. You know, this idea that Hamas is an excrescence that can be somehow removed is what intellectually allows them to make the case that this is not against the Palestinian people. But it is an intellectual fraud statement. Okay, that's yeah. the first thing I would say. Secondly, for hundreds of years, Palestinian Christians... Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Muslims lived together. In fact, the term was Palestinian Jews. You know, they lived together. They lived together in Jerusalem. They lived together from the northern reaches of, of you know, Haifa and, and the orange groves all the way down um, in, deep into the Negev. They lived together, you know. Um, it was in the 1930s as a consequence of the rise of European anti-Semitism including German exterminism. You know, these two tendencies develop in the 1930s. Look, in, in Europe from the 19th century, there's a documented question called the Judenfrag, you know, the, the Jewish question, asking, can Germans, can Jews be German? You know, are they an alien? I mean, this is a German and then European-wide problem. This idea that Jews are alien to European culture and so, so on. It's a European issue. It leads then into uh, exterminism in the, by the 1930s and 40s. In the 1930s, large number of Jews tried to escape coming back into um, you know, uh, a place which was safe for them, you know, somewhere in the world. So in, in Palestine, they start with the help of the British to buy a lot of land. This results in the first clash between Palestinians, for the first time, between um, Jewish settlers coming in Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Christians, and Palestinian Muslims. That was the cleavage. The Palestinian Jews, Christian Muslims, 
and the settlers coming from Europe, there was a clash. It was the revolt of 1936, 37, 38. You know, it escalates into the three years of struggle. Um, but then in 1948, the whole system was closed. That is to say, now it was decided this is going to be a Jewish state. Um, in the first meeting that the uh, people like Ben Gurion and others had in 1948, they couldn't because they themselves were not religious, most of them. They didn't want to create something called a Jewish state, but they said it's a state for the Jews. Um, and for that, they needed to expel non-Jews. They created an ethno-nationalist state project. Um, that's actually the lingering heart of the problem here, that you can't have um, you know, Palestinians living in Israel because they live as second-class citizens, because it's an ethno-nationalist project. Um, there is no two-state solution. That's been eaten up by the settlements. That's been eaten up by the collapse of the safe passage between Gaza and West Bank, which was promised by the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords have been just torn up and thrown away by the Israeli government, um, you know, expanding into what they call Greater Israel from the Jordan River to the sea. That's a government policy. In fact, not even government. That's a policy of all the political parties. Um, maybe the left is the only one that didn't agree with this. Um, so, you know, you get this state where the two-state solution is gone. The Israelis cannot even imagine right now a one-state solution unless they get past this ethno-national co concept, which is why instead of a one-state or a two-state question, you got the three-state solution. And that's Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt. They want to expel the Palestinians and create this zone for, um, for Jews to live in safely. Um, this is an error, you know, because as you say, you can't keep building apartheid walls further and further away. It's not going to work. Um, people are still going to thirst to come back home. Now, it is also a bet that people make. You know, my family is from Pakistan. Um, many of them had come in the 1930s into what is today India. But my uncles and my aunts and so on were still in Lahore in 1947. They had to get on a truck and drive across the border. 13 million people crossed the border to create India and Pakistan. One million people died uh, in, the, in the process of that crossing. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrible history. We don't want to use partition as a model for anything. Look, the British tried to bring partition to Israel. They did it in India. One million dead. 13 million had to move. They didn't learn a lesson. They took that same thing and brought it to Palestine and said, we'll partition, you know, we'll get the Palestinians out, blah, blah, blah. Look where it leads you. People, I've visited homes in Jordan, in refugee camps, in homes in Lebanon, in refugee camps. You know, there are Palestinians, fourth generation, holding the key to their house, somewhere in some village in what is now Israel, still with the key, still hoping to go back. Because why? 1948, um, UN Resolution 194 was a resolution that established the right to return. Um, you know, and that is being held on by people as they hold the material key, wanting to go back home. Um, you got this right to return idea. It's never going away, man. It's now baked in the cake of Palestinian culture. And if the Israelis in some fantasy land backed by the West and so on believe that eventually the Palestinians will give up and go and become Egyptians or Jordanians or Lebanese or Americans or whatever. It's not going to happen. Palestinians, third generation in Europe, 
you know, Palestinians in Chile, Christian Palestinians largely that left during the Ottoman Empire. Chile has the largest Palestinian population outside Palestine. Um, those people have been in Chile for like a hundred years. They still think of themselves as Palestinian, primary identity, uh, very much united with the Palestinian people and so on. Uh, the football club in that part of Santiago is called Palestina. Um, you know, it's not going anywhere, Mr. Netanyahu. It's not going anywhere. If, and that's the last question, if there were, was a return to sane politics uh, and there was a plan to actually bring this 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 slaughter and tragedy to an end, uh, what would be your recommendation? Obviously, the two-state solution is up, uh, is utterly out of the question. Uh, the three-state solution is utterly inhumane. The one-state solution uh, where you, you have people again living together under a new name and and a new identity would be something but but difficult uh, difficult to do um which one what would your recommendation be um that you would think is also has some chance of of being realistic i mean look you know well we are interesting people human beings we've evolved a lot you know We've evolved from tribalism to being able to live in multi-ethnic states. You know, uh, some states have a harder time with it than others. You know, it's not like Asian countries are champions at this. So many of them, you know, the homogeneity is extraordinary. Um, the difficulty of getting migration and paperwork to, I mean, it's not, there are very few countries that can be super proud of the heritage of openness. You know, xenophobia is increasing on the African continent, okay? In South Africa, there are riots against migrants from outside. Um, we're not a perfect planet, but we're evolving. And one of the features of that evolution is to get past the idea of ethno-national state um, or a racial state. You know, we got to get past this idea. Um, it is debilitating. There is just too much human movement uh, to allow for it, to afford it, you know, anti-immigrant anti sentiment in Europe, in the United States, very high. Well, Israel is founded, essentially, and is based on antipathy to outsiders. You know, it's based on that. Um, it's based on the idea that outsiders are not welcome, you know, as full citizens. And maybe that is something that the Israeli people have to really consider. You know, do they think they can actually live in a fortress somewhere? Um, you know, where it's only people that say only people of Jewish ancestry are allowed in. Um, is that going to be first practical and possible? Also, is it moral? I mean, is that the way we want to live these days? Um, you know, there are lots of traditions in Judaism, uh, some Orthodox Jews, in fact, who, are, who oppose Zionism because they said this is not the correct way. You know, Jews have lived over in many countries for, for centuries. Um, you know, and must continue to live there and do the work of God, uh, you know, read, study the Torah and so on. You don't have to go to um, Israel. There is no chosen people and so on. There are debates inside the Jewish community. I'm talking highly observant, um, you know, people who follow Judaism were unhappy with, with Zionism. In fact, even now you see at many demonstrations, Hashidim come out, you know, with signs that say we are against Israel. Um, there's a debate that must be had. And I'm not talking just about um, people of Jewish uh, ancestry or of, of, who have a faith in Judaism. I also just am talking now very specifically about Israeli citizens. Israeli citizens need to reflect on this. You know, why is it 
that anybody of Jewish ancestry can come in and get papers to live in Israel. But somebody whose parents or grandparents were removed forcibly in 1948, when they arrive in you know, Tel Aviv, in Ben-Gurion Airport, they are treated as terrorists. I mean, what kind of moral climate is that? Um, and what is that saying about you as a country? Um, is that what you want? I mean, I am not in favor in general of, of you know, ethno-nationalist states. I just think there's something uncomfortable about it. You know, in India, for instance, in after 1947, you know, India is, was an enormous country even in 47. So you, it's actually a federation of states. It's not a unitary country. But the states were organized by language, not by ethnicity. So Tamil speakers lived in Tamil Nadu. And if I went and learned Tamil, I could live there. I don't have to claim Tamil. It's not by ethnicity. It's by language. It was called a linguistic organization of states. Um, language is a perfectly good way to organize a nation. Why? Because, you know, you can learn a language. Um, you know, Japanese, for instance, if you learn Japanese, you should be allowed to live in Japan. You know, there's nothing alien about you. You learn Japanese. You are respectful of the culture and mores of, of the place. You know, why do you need ancestry to guarantee you the right to live in a place? You know, it's not necessary. Ancestry is a terrible foundation for, um, for belonging in a state. There are other civic things that are possible, but language is a perfectly good one because you should be able to communicate with people, right? Um, so I, I feel like, yeah, man, I mean, I've been in, in, in very many parts of Israel where Palestinians are bilingual. They speak Hebrew and they speak Arabic. And some of them also speak English, you know. Um, what about that? Create a trilingual country. I mean, how is that a surprise? Look at Switzerland. They have had a multilingual, trilingual, four languages, I think, in Switzerland. Italian, Spanish, German, and English, you know. Uh, Romansh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of languages. In, I grew up speaking many languages in India. I had to learn English and Hindi. That's the national languages. Must learn Bengali because I grew up in Bengal. But also Punjabi, that was my home language. Why not found a, a country based on linguistic diversity? Kids learn these languages. You know, there's a way out here. That's what I'm trying to say. That is true. Is, yeah, you have to open the imagination to let the door open. Yeah, and you need to want peace. You need to want to solve things, not through bombs. Vijay Prashad, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks a lot.